Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 105, Anything Goes, the Woke Edition. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And a full disclaimer here at the beginning, this episode was going to be something totally different until about 15 minutes ago, (laughs) when I realized I just had an existential crisis (laughs) or maybe awakening. Maybe I just woke up. Um, I had been researching a vast number of topics to discuss on this episode. And we had done an Anything Goes before, which, by the way, we just listened to not too long ago. And I really enjoyed it, actually. It was like a variety hour or two. (laughs) complete with beatnik poetry and singing and just musing about things that um, have happened, were happening, and have happened since then, Gumby Damas. So I wanted this episode to kind of be a a woke edition of that, and I was going to talk about all these different subjects that we hear about so much in the things that we listen to nowadays, whether it's podcasts or mainstream media or just discussions we have with people. And who knows? Some of those topics may still come up, Um, but I think I uh, I just realized that No matter how much I research, it's just never going to be good enough because there's just, there's so many confusing, conflicting things out there. And I'm missing my whole life by trying to understand something that could just be a topic to divide and confuse and basically occupy people's minds instead of occupying my own mind and using it to enjoy my life. So yeah, that was my, uh, my long disclaimer there at the beginning. So, hey, Gumby, we're back in Durham and, uh, there was something that we noticed right away in our hobo life that was a little, uh, awakening to us or a lot of awakening now that it's been over a week since we've been back, there is barely any water in the creeks and streams that we normally enjoy uh, bathing in and and washing our things in without soap. Uh, They're like, they're dry. They're completely dry. So luckily there is a river that um, still has some water in it that we that we were able to cool off and bathe in yesterday, but it's definitely uh, different coming down out of the mountains where there was just so much water and rain. And one of the reasons why we were leaving the mountains is because there was just so much rain. 
what do you have to say for yourself, Gumby? Well, on the way down, we were uh, we were really t- trying to take our time and uh, stopping at like every rest stop along the way um, and hanging out there all day and then moving on to the next rest stop for the night. Um, you know, we just realized we weren't in any hurry, so why not just kind of linger and use the rest stops? And for a good part of that, it rained and it was hot, so we had to have the windows rolled up. And the fan, we've got this fan we've talked about, this DeWalt fan that's like heavy-duty looking, like built for construction sites. (laughs) And the damn charger broke, so the battery, you know, got depleted and we had no fan with the windows rolled up. And it's hot and rainy and it was just really miserable on the way down. I think that the fan battery charger thing it wasn't so much a default in the DeWalt brand. I think we plugged it into an outlet and it may have like gotten a big surge or something. Thank you, Asheville. I'd still say that's some kind of default in the DeWalt, as hmm. you say, because it seems like they sh- that should have been better protected against something like that. I mean, if you got a fan that's for construction sites, mm-hmm. you're going to have like surges and stuff. I mean, I would think, you know. Remember when I was doing construction, we just like kind of straight wire stuff in on a, a temporary basis until like the electrical system got put in. So I don't know. Um, but anyway, at first we got back and like the rain cleared and, you know, it felt cool with the clear skies. And we're like, man, I'm really grateful for like the hard trip down because it really the contrast was, man, it's really beautiful to be back. And in a lot of ways, it is beautiful to be back. Um, the air is different than in the mountains. The The air up in the mountains is really cool and crisp, but can be a little harsh at times. And down here, it's kind of like more gentle and sweet. And the, the smell of pine fills mm-hmm. the air. Um, but yeah, as Teresa said, it seems to be that there was a drought. Uh, all of our swim spots are really stagnant and low and it's uh, most of them we can't even get all the way underwater. They're so shallow right now. Um, and the bugs. I talked briefly, um, chatted, chatted briefly with a friend that lives in this area over the summer. And she mentioned casually that like, oh, the, the chiggers are really bad. So I just thought maybe, you know, they got a farm that they're working on and, you know, she got into a chigger nest. But I think the chiggers have just possibly been really bad all summer. Um I hit them almost immediately. So the whole lower half of my body, it's like I got chicken pox, just oh chigger bites everywhere. Like they ran out of real estate or where to draw blood. So I spent the morning this morning um, picking some jewelweed plants from next to the creek and chopping them up and boiling them in a big pot of water. Thank for, you, jewelweed. Yeah, for a couple of hours and made some skin wash, which uh, I've applied once so far and I can already feel is soothing and will hopefully heal, help me heal from these faster. But yeah, right now we're just kind of in a very discombobulated time. Um, the water has affected a lot. A lot of the places that we would park and kind of stay for periods of time, um, there's no water there. So if we don't have water to kind of bathe in, to wash our dishes. Uh, to soothe our bug bites. Well, that's a whole different thing, Um, (laughs) not just to suit the bug bites, but then to get to the water, I got to go through brushy places that have not been maintained since we're not there to maintain them, um, some of these places, and the bugs. I just don't want to face, like, when I get this eaten up with bugs, I try to stay on, like, established paths and concrete (laughs) if I can, you know. I just don't want to take a chance of, like, getting another big onslaught of bugs. Let me heal from the last one before I start, uh, you know... uh, 
what am I trying to say, bushwhacking again. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we've been kind of, kind of, I don't know, what would I say, lingering in parks and not being able to stay put like we used to at, at places. So hopefully this will smooth out. Hopefully we'll get rain, it'll get cold, the bugs will go down, the creeks will fill back up, and um, we'll get back in our rhythm. But right now things feel really up in the air, which I think is uh, kind of contributing to our preparation of this episode just kind of not working out the way we'd intended yeah um (laughs) like I was saying in the beginning I was envisioning this as taking statements that I've read in various articles various sources that had to do with kind of the things that are attributed to the the woke ideology, the left, the Can liberal I, left, yeah. I actually wanted to add a thought to that because um, I was wanting to address what you said before about you had this epiphany, you know, like you were saying just now, reiterating that uh, you had this idea of getting into woke ideology and, you know, kind of with a critique of it and you had this epiphany that you don't really know anything, but... The way you're wording it, it sounds like a new thing, which, you know, I want you to talk about more about what feels new about it. But I'm also thinking as I'm listening to you that this has also been a thing that's been gathering momentum more and more. We've been talking about for months now, man, what the hell good does it do just to like keep uh, getting into this woke crap? There's nothing we can do about it. Uh, we know we, we disagree with a lot of the ideology that's uh, gaining power and momentum in our culture right now. And uh, more and more, we're, we're feeling like we need to work on us. We need to work on skills. Like, I just really uh, pressured Teresa to, like, pick a skill. You know, like, let's get started on skills. Like, well, what do you want to work on? And Teresa got um, online and somebody was giving away some crochet stuff. So Teresa got that. So... You know, just the feeling of, like, working on something with your hands that's so simple and direct. So this idea of, like, trying to move away from kind of all the philosophy and stuff like that and just buckle down and work on our own lives, our own selves. It's uh, been an idea that's been in the air, which I know for me as well, when I'm getting into topics lately, it's kind of like, eh, I just don't feel the same steam as I do at other times doing that. And, uh, you know, Socrates, who we brought up in Martian Anthropology Quest, the first episode of this season, he said, the smartest thing you can say is, I don't know. That's basically what all of his arguments, his debates with other people were about. He just asked questions to try to lead them not to accepting his stance. He said he didn't have a stance. He just wanted to show people, we don't know anything. So let's start from there. Let's embrace that. We don't know anything. Um, and I feel like maybe that's kind of the territory we're getting into. Exactly. Uh, something else that we were starting to read, I hope to finish reading, we're about halfway through, is Edward Bernays's uh, book from about, I think, 1926 called Propaganda. Edward Bernays being the father of public relations, a.k.a. public propaganda bullshit. And I wrote down a quote from um, page 50 of that book. Bernays says, But when the example of a leader is not at hand, and the herd must think for itself, it does so by means of clichés. 
pat words or images, which stand for a whole group of ideas or experiences. And I wanted to share that because I feel like there's a lot of that in the air right now um, from all fronts, from all sides, from all, you know, perspectives. It seems like, uh, yeah, you're just checking boxes. It's that, what is that? Uh, identity politics. And I'm quite frankly sick of it. I was reading about critical race theory or trying to read about critical race theory for this podcast because I had read some before. And from what I understood, a professor, uh, a black professor at the Harvard Law School had started to look into laws that weren't necessarily, they were like, it was, this was like in the civil rights era, um, Brown versus board for an example. And this Harvard law professor, Derek Bell, he, he thought there was something kind of strange that even though there were laws being passed that were supposed to be for increasing the civil rights of marginalized groups, that it wasn't quite doing that. Like desegregating schools didn't actually bring about a better educational experience for black children. And not just in the beginning. I mean, it still really, quite frankly, hasn't. Why do you think that is? I mean, I'm not so sure that's a civil rights issue, at least the way people tend to think of it. Well, um, I think what he was getting at is, and I'm not agreeing with this and I'm not disagreeing with this, but the whole idea that the laws maybe aren't, it's maybe not necessarily the way to handle these types of things. And again, he was a a law professor, so maybe it was more about um, actions in the community, actions of groups of people you know, I, I think back to like the Black Panthers um, in part, not that that worked out because of the FBI, but maybe these laws aren't necessarily set up for helping people the way that they are touted to, especially by liberals. Well, I say two factors at play with what you just said. One is that I do believe that it's a long-standing um, democratic strategy. What? No, I just, I thought I smelled Sherlock. (laughs) (laughs) A longstanding democratic strategy to actually, um, wrap racism in a facade of (laughs) anti-racism. Um, so I think that's happening, you know, like there's so many things with, you were studying critical race theory that we uncovered that it's like, oh my God, this is some of the most racist stuff I've ever heard. And it's meant to it's it's pushed forward as if it was supposed to confront racism, um, and I guess we'll probably get into some examples of that. Um, but another thing that I don't like is how this ideology so much puts a wedge between blacks and whites. For instance, you know, saying like, "All right, black people aren't doing well in school, so these laws that got them, you know, the schools aren't segregated anymore. They're getting the same teachers as the white kids, going to the same schools as the white kids, and yet um, they're saying black people are falling behind." I think that's a very short-sighted picture. 
It may be true that there's a much higher percentage of black kids that are falling behind, but there are some white kids that are falling behind and black kids that are doing very well within this educational structure. So I feel like we allow ourselves to get distracted and that the the political machine intentionally tries to distract us by taking a kernel of truth and leading us astray with that kernel of truth. There's something, like when I went to school, it didn't serve me either. And I'm not black. And I know a lot of my friends felt the same way. There's something else. I mean, like, I feel like in that paradigm, it's kind of a given that like, oh, if we could all be educated, that would be the best thing for everybody. And we're not even getting into what are we calling education? Is this education or indoctrination? Mm -hmm. What if there are other things at play other than just like people aren't getting served? How do we get these people to swallow the pill at school and accept this indoctrination more? Um, Yeah, it's just the the slant of the picture over and over when I get into this stuff that I feel a big objection to. I just saw on Facebook a meme this morning that was a picture of – like the first little black girl going to a uh, all-white school, and there were white women in the background with just hateful faces shouting and screaming at her. And uh, it said something like, the same women that were in this crowd, um, the same white people in this crowd, are now like objecting to the history of this happening being taught in schools. And a lot of the white people were commenting on it like, oh, toxic white people. I am so sick of white people. And... I commented, I actually went to a redneck Southern school and I got taught about segregated schools and the civil rights movement. I'll tell you some things I didn't get taught about. Edward Bernays and propaganda, the father of propaganda. I didn't get taught about the 1877 Great Uprising where all the hobos all over the nation stopped the railroads. There's a lot of things in history and let's be fair. How can you teach every single piece of history in any history class? It's too big. So, again, it's, it's, it's slanted. It's like, all right, you're going to say there are pieces of black history that are left out. There are pieces of poor white history that are left out. There are pieces of how corrupt the government is, the, of the CIA's history that are left out of history class. By design. By design. There's a bigger problem than racism happening right now. And I feel like by making everything about racism, we are doing everyone a great disservice. All we're doing is keeping ourselves divided and distracted. Exactly. I came across an article from The New Yorker, which I don't normally read. Um, Obviously, (laughs) everything is propaganda. I mean, you just can't get away from it. It, It's going to sway you because there are inherent biases for whoever wrote it. But let's just take this at face value. So there's this conservative journalist and activist named Christopher, I believe his last name is Rufo, R-U-F-O, U-F-O. And um, he evidently is kind of, in a way, taking credit for identifying critical race theory as something to stir everybody up with. So the story goes... Stir as in arouse them or stir as in create problems? Create problems. Ah. So the story goes like he was looking for something that would be like just the right mix of buzzwords that would not seem like he's really trying to manipulate what the message is, but 
just by bringing it up, I think people would be triggered. White people would be triggered on the conservative side, on the liberal leftist side. By being called, like, uh, institutionally racist? Like, yeah. <laughs> there's um, something wrong with being white? And and he appeared on some sort of Fox News program, Tucker Carlson or something. I don't know. I don't watch TV, so I can't really be sure of what he said. But there was this article, like I'm telling you, in The New Yorker, and it was saying that this guy kind of, he wanted to rile up the both sides as much as he could. And he even was invited to the White House after Donald Trump saw him on the Fox News program to be a part of this push to not teach critical race theory in schools. And there's a lot of um, debate as to whether or not critical race theory is being taught in schools. I'm not in school. I have no reason to believe that it's not being taught in some way in school because of other things that I've read. Mainly that if you're a teacher and you happen to be exposed to any of the critical theories in higher education, whether or not you are intending to, you're probably teaching it um, in certain ways. And they're very clever about changing names of trying to stay ahead of any kind of definitions. Of course. For instance, as soon as people start talking about critical race theory, they'll say, oh, well, actually, it's a legal theory. That's all it is, it, uh, legal theory being taught in schools. So what are you talking about? And when that argument falls apart, it's like, oh, well, actually, it's anti-racism. We're calling it anti-racism now. What's critical race theory? That's a word you guys made up. What are you talking about? Yeah. So what I'm getting at here is <laughs> I don't even know who to believe about what regarding this. But what I think happened was this critical race theory thing got taken out of context in certain ways and not just by the conservative right in the United States. I think it also has gotten definitely out of hand on the liberal left. And the libertarians um, are mixed in there too and whatever else groups you want to say. Because, um, like Gumbity, Gumbity <laughs> was mentioning, he, uh, he said that critical race theory. It's like, oh no, it's just anti-racism. So that's a lot easier for people to understand that very simple message of like, oh, white people are bad. Um, and so that is what's getting pushed as a narrative of what critical race theory is, but that's not what it is. It wasn't intended to be that, even though some of the people that, that started this critical race theory stuff back in the eighties and nineties, they're not necessarily stopping it. They're not stopping that. But what I think in my heart of hearts is I don't think that what Derek Bell was trying to do and what the people that were trying to learn what he was trying to, to bring uh, into, the, into the public eye or at least the academic eye, I really don't think that succeeded. I think what's happened is a divisive thing has happened. Well, what was he trying to bring into the public eye as you understand it? I think, um, again, I don't know, but 
if I try to boil it down and simplify it, I think he was trying to say that there are people that co-opt movements and they do so for their own personal gains. And the people that were the, the marginalized, the people that they were trying to help aren't ever getting helped or maybe somewhat getting helped, but in a, in a way that's not really beneficial to them in the long run. It's kind of like, oh, well, we'll throw them a bone to help them, but it's just a gesture so that we can maybe get votes or something. Well, see, just the way you worded that, I agree with that completely. I don't know how that gets turned into everything else I've heard about critical race theory, though, because like you just said people, oppressed people. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. I see that in history over and over. I see that play out is whatever marginalized people, which are usually poor people of every stripe and color, um, some kind of program will come along supposedly to help them. But in hindsight, in in a bigger picture, it's another control mechanism. It's meant to appease them, pacify them, but not really. And, you know, the more I think about this, the more I'm not, I don't make an enemy of the rich anymore either. Because most of the poor are playing the same game as the rich. It's just they resent the rich for playing it better. And the rich often have a head start. They come from rich families. They come from places where it's easier to get ahead. But let's face it, most of these poor people you know, you put them in the situation of Jeff Bezos, just drop them in like, okay, like let's say your last name is Bezos. You come from this family and everything. (laughs) You're not going to know how to do what Jeff Bezos does. He's not just a privileged person. He's a person with certain skills that help him rise to the top in that. It's the whole social structure that the poor and the rich are involved in. Mm -hmm. And yeah, what you said about critical race theory, if that is indeed, you said, what's his name? Derek Bell. Derek Bell. If that is what he had in mind, yeah, I agree with that. But I don't know how that, that gets turned into, let's just focus on blacks as if the blacks were the only oppressed group and everyone else that's white is the oppressor because they're white. So it must mean everything is more uh, designed for them. You know, I once saw like this list of things that said, oh, I didn't know about white privilege until, you know, I saw this list and there were things on there like, I can get a house in any neighborhood I want to without my race being brought up. And I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Like, Treyburn is this golf course community nearby. I'm not getting a house there. (laughs) If I win the lottery and can afford a house, people are really going to recognize this guy don't belong in this neighborhood. Whereas if I was a black doctor, you know, that spoke really well and was highly educated and wore a sophisticated sweater, I think I'd much more fit into that neighborhood than I would. (laughs) Uh, There was a, speaking of... um critical race theory and whiteness and all of that. This was, a, I guess, something from last July, July 2020. So it's over a year old and people have probably already had their, you know, their say about it on Facebook and in memes and everything like that. But we heard about it not too long ago on a podcast. And it was where um, the podcast said that the Smithsonian Museum had issued some sort of document about like what whiteness is and it was actually the National Museum of African American Heritage and Culture which I guess is under the umbrella of the Smithsonian but um, 
it was on their website and it was like this graphic that had really comical things about what white people like. Like white people like bland food. Steak and potatoes is best. And, you know, all white people want are women that look like Barbie dolls. Uh, who wrote this? Like I, I told Gumby when I saw this graphic, which has been taken down and they apologized. I, I'm not even sure who was in charge of picking the graphic and who was in charge of like screening what information was to go on the website. But I think maybe somebody just made a mistake. And How the hell do you make a mistake? It takes work to, and then time well, to put together a list like that. Because they didn't, no one at that museum made that infographic about whiteness. It came from a book, which I had written down, from a woman, I believe in the 70s, named Judy Katz, K-A-T-Z. A white lady. She might be, uh, you know, have some other stuff mixed there. I don't know. I don't really care. But it was something that was, like, really out of date. It was, like, from the 70s. And somebody chose that in error. And um, I think they just basically, uh, they thought it, it looked really good. It was, like, something simple and and succinct and <laughs> and maybe whoever put it up was like yeah that does make sense but it was like from this old book that I think I don't know if the woman was just trying to make money then or what but um yeah so the the whole story kind of got again skewed to make you think that this African American museum had had made this infographic about whiteness. Now they put it on their website, but then they took it down and there is still some, uh, kind of, I don't know, on the edge stuff on their website. I'm not quite sure where they're trying to go. I still don't see how that falls in the category of mistake. I mean, somebody put it on the website that works there and I would imagine it's a high ranking person. The janitor doesn't get to decide what goes (laughs) on the website. So somebody that like has a job there that has some clout oh, yeah. put that on the website and already, you know, just the title is divisive. How are they not going to skim it? I mean, when I saw this graphic, it's like it's not one little controversial sentence buried in a whole bunch of, uh, you know, very reasonable stuff. The whole damn thing is outrageous. I mean, it's like like you were talking about white people like this kind of food and black people like this kind of food. It's like collectivism. You know, I, that's another term mm-hmm. that I've come to get more familiar. Then that was on the list. Um, white people tend to be more individualistic. Black people are more collectivist. And collectivism is the seed of racism. Collectivism is saying black people like watermelon. <laughs> Some black people do like watermelon. Some white people like watermelon. I like, I watermelon. like watermelon. I do too. So there's no problem with that. The insulting thing is when you use it to describe a whole group of people as if like, oh, y'all, you know, I I just, I've got your number. I know everything I need to know about you. Just, it's like feeding a bear, throw a dog some dog food, you know, throw this group of people some watermelon, throw uh, some bland food at the white people. That's what they all like. (laughs) I mean, it's collectivism is the seed of racism. I don't care which way it goes or to what group of people to say all women like to dress this way. That's collectivism to say most women 
seem to like to dress up, you know, wear a pretty dress, but not all women, and it's fine if you just want to wear pants all the time. That's individualism. And individualism, I feel like, is where we need to get to. But to say, it's ironic to say all white people, you know, like this is a white trait, individualism. Because the problem is, if they're talking about white racism, that it turns out a lot of some of these white people that they're saying are out there are collectivists. They can't be racist if they're not collectivist. And to say all black people, like it's a black trait to be more collectivist, is to say most black people are racist. They don't see the white individual. They see all white people. This is how we describe <laughs> all white people. So I would say whoever worked for this place, mm-hmm. and you said it's a, a black organization? Well, it it is an African-American history and culture museum. All right. Whoever put that graphic on there was racist. <laughs> well, here's the name of the book that it came from. It was a 1978 book called White Awareness, Handbook for Anti-Racism Training. By Judy H. Katz. Um, some of the other things that were on that uh, infographic about whiteness, they were saying that for white people, there was a strong emphasis on on the scientific method, and that whiteness um, included objective, rational, linear thinking. And white people were also that uh, they had a Protestant work ethic which meant that hard work is the key to success. That's inherently white. Um, (laughs) And it's unfortunate because... Uh, We're proof that that ain't always white. Yeah, it's unfortunate too because um, as many articles have pointed out since this situation happened a year ago or more, um, it's not just looking at white people and saying like, oh, this is like all white people. But then if you look at it from like a black person's perspective, they might be like, well, wait a second. Are you saying that because I'm not white, that I don't think objectively, that I don't have rational thought, that maybe I don't, that I don't think hard work is the key to success. Um, so it's kind of just stereotyping and racist for, for many groups. It reminds me of that, uh, that political stance of, uh, what was it? That push that you shouldn't need to get an ID to vote. Right. So, you know, I, I heard that for years and I'm like, why? Why would you not need to get an ID to vote? I mean, like, who can't get an ID? If you can't get your shit together enough to buy an ID, like, just an ID, I'm saying not even a driver's license. You can go and get an ID for, hell, I don't know, last time I looked into it was, it was a long time ago that I needed an ID, like, 10 bucks. You know, if you can't get your shit together to pull together 10 bucks to get an ID, you probably shouldn't be helping out to elect the next leader of our country for the next four years. I don't care what fucking color you are. And it's such a racist stance, you know, because so when I look into that and ask why, the next part of that argument will be, well, it excludes minorities. Duh. They can't get an ID sometimes. So it's a way of like keeping minorities from voting and having a say in our country. And why? Why would that be? How does that exclude minorities? You think that they're too stupid and disorganized to pull their shit together and get an ID? And then I'm the one who's racist for questioning <laughs> that? I've never met a black person so stupid that they couldn't 
pull their shit together and get an ID. I've never met a white person that stupid, and I've met many stupid people of all shapes and sizes and colors and sexes. I mean stupid. Unless they have a caretaker to wipe the drool off their mouth, they can get an ID. And even then, their caretaker might help them to get an ID. Yeah. So some of the things that comes from that camp, supposedly the camp that's speaking up on behalf of the minorities and the oppressed groups and are fighting the racist, they routinely come come out with statements and points of view that are so absolutely racist, my mouth falls open. I can't (laughs) believe they got away with saying it. Yeah. And I can't believe more people don't call them on it. Well, I've noticed that you're you're kind of speaking in an emotional tone that's kind of loud. And I'm starting to question your whiteness because um, in other things that I've read, being white means that you're often emotionally reserved and that you don't like to publicly show any sort of emotions or even raise your voice. But I was also remembering that I Yo Mama fight. That, but I'm feeling very calm and reserved right now. Oh, I was thinking about that Yo Mama fight that we witnessed, um, what was it, last year? Kind of like as the pandemic was just yeah, starting I to ramp up. can't remember, a year and a year and a half ago. We were walking through downtown Durham. We were looking for a restaurant. And uh, we were near one of the bigger uh, homeless kitchens in Durham, which is across from the library, which was closed at that time or barely open. It had some people working in there. Yeah, it was. Um, I think it was open just for voting in the parking lot. Yeah. So we saw a crowd of people gathering and these two black guys starting to get into it. And one of them like was saying, what you say about my mama? And the <laughs> other guy's kind of saying like, you know, you know, kind of mumbling like I didn't say nothing. What you say about my mama? And he's starting to take off his clothes, take off his shirt, like throwing it down. Like, what you say about my mama? Whatever he said about his mama was. And it's just building up. And the <laughs> other guy's not saying much. Two black guys. And, uh, you know, he's got like this, like, this stick or this club kind of behind his back. Like, you know, he's getting ready. And it's just escalating. So all the homeless people are standing around. Teresa is kind of like, let's go. Let's go. I don't want to, you know. I'm afraid if I'm, like, watching this, I'm going to kind of somehow get involved accidentally. My whiteness was showing. (laughs) And most of the time, I'm kind of the same way. I'm like, you know, when people are showing their ass, like, if there's nothing I can do to make it better, I I, kind of hate the whole, like, just spectator watching, you know, the the dog fight kind of (laughs) thing. But for this one. But for this one, I'm like... No, this is something special. This is a yo mama fight. This is an epic yo mama fight. And to this day, I'm glad I I lingered and watched this because I will never see a yo mama fight like this. Apparently, the only real problem between these two guys was one of them was accused of saying something about the other one's mama. And that's the only thing the other guy said. This went on for like, I don't know, 10 minutes maybe where the guy's just yelling, what you say about my mama? And another significant thing that happened, and anyway, the fight didn't really turn into like a fist fight. The guy that was like saying, what you say about my mama, he grabbed the other guy's backpack, which is really tragic because apparently they're both homeless, I would imagine, and just took the backpack and flung it across a fence and scattered all of his crap. And, you know, being homeless, that's probably all the guy owned. Yeah. But the guy, you know, the other guy just seemed to be like, all right, I'll put up with whatever, you know, I don't want to get into a fight. Somebody might get hurt. I might get hurt. It's better to just pick up my shit and deal with the shame. You know, I guess is what the guy was thinking. Um, 
but whatever. But there was a guy, a black guy that came out of the library when we were watching this. And he said, man, y'all may not know this, but black people hate each other. And I looked at him. I said, a lot of white people hate each other, too. But I found that tragic, you know, because I've heard things like that before from black people is like there's kind of a culture of self-loathing. Not everybody. I'm not a collectivist. I'm not saying all black people. I'm saying that this is something I've run into before. And that self-loathing translates into loathing other people. Like, mm-hmm. I think this whole thing about, like, black people calling each other nigga, I don't think that's a good thing. I think sometimes that's just kind of a conversational thing. It don't mean anything. But I think too often, that's sort of a subtle way of keeping that alive of, like, that dumb, you know, throwing the N-word around all the time. I think it kind of is a way that people keep each other down. And what does the liberal left say? Like, no, they're taking back They're taking back their word. It's empowering. Yeah. I'm like, no, that word has always been an insult. Like, (laughs) that word should just be left behind by all people. Because if it's getting kept alive in our culture right now, it's through the people that get damaged by it the most. And uh, you, we were just saying something about. Oh, I know. I think you had a post on Facebook, or you were arguing with somebody, and you were say, you were bringing up something about hypnotism. And I've been noticing kind of the mainstream media and people's responses to just if I say the word Trump, like it seems like they have been hypnotized. Yeah. We both know a woman, actually, Teresa was friends with her for a long time. And, uh, I just met her briefly, but she had done a little bit of studying and had a little bit of training in hypnosis. And she said a few things, cause I don't run into many people that know anything about hypnosis. So my mind really, uh, paid attention when she talked about hypnosis. And, uh, one of the things she said was one of the keys to hypnosis is trigger an emotional response and then repeat the suggestion, repeat, repeat, repeat. And it'll get so deep into you that you think you thought it. You don't realize you're being hypnotized. And I'm thinking about how that is happening in our culture right now, either accidentally or on purpose. I believe on purpose. But Trump, so much triggered an emotional reaction. It's not just Trump. I mean, there are other things, racism, stuff like that. I was just thinking about the N-word. Yeah, the N-word. And then repeat, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat. And it just gets in there. And like, you know, again, going back to that guy, black people hate each other. It's like, where the hell do you go from there? Like, and they're trying to do it to white people. Oh, now because you're white, there's something wrong with you. You are the oppressor. You're the one that did all this shit. It's your fault. There is like, because you're born white, you have something to make up for. No, you were just born the same as everybody else. You're just born and... You know, probably didn't own any slave, probably never been a slave, just like everybody else. So that's bullshit. And what that's going to turn into is the same damn thing. It's already turning into it. You know, like I said, that post with the with the uh, white women, the black and white uh, picture of the white women screaming at the poor little black girl getting into that school. It's like, oh, I'm so sick of white, toxic white people. This was said by a white person. <laughs> we all need to start learning to have pride in our races or at least to have compassion for who we are. If black people have done awful things, broken into cars, stolen radios, uh, you know, just done a lot of bad things and we're, we're letting them off the hook, rightly so. I'm not saying we shouldn't because of their history, you know, partly rightly so. We're all responsible for our actions. The same damn thing can be said for white people. They were born into a corrupt, ugly system and got taught some bullshit. And largely what's releasing us from some of this 
white people are directly involved in that too. Give them credit for both things. So I just find it really sad when I see anybody say that in my race, we hate each other. That is like the essence of the completely broken tribe. Mm -hmm. And once you're broken to that extent, I mean, you're kind of just being pulled by the nose by some other group. By design. By design. A group that, like, keeps that going. So, yeah, I guess that's all I wanted to say about that right now. And I just wanted to say briefly, because this is not an episode, um, you know, like I said, I, I've, I've kind of gone all the way around the circle. <laughs> so I thought I knew stuff, and I thought I was learning more about stuff. And then I, like, came back around and I was like, shit, I don't really think I know anything. Um, but I'll say this. I started looking at like the history of slavery and not just in the Americas, not just in the, you know, 16th century to present. I'm talking about what we know of what we know, so to speak, of the history of slavery in the entire world, in the entire records that we have of humanity. In a nutshell, everybody, every continent, every group of people have been involved in slavery, whether they were the slaves or they held slaves. I'm talking everybody's groups, um, whether you were Pacific Northwest indigenous people, uh, Pacific Northwest in the United States, all the way up uh, through Canada and to Alaska, whether you were Hawaiian, whether you were Inca, Mayan, whether you were in Eastern Europe, all people have been involved in this. And I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it is. it happened. And the reason I was looking into that was I was just wondering, like, what is it about what happened to Africans who came to the United States? It was horrendous. I'm not saying it wasn't. But I'm also saying that in the past, I think slavery wasn't just like, oh, you know, you're my slave. Okay, go play. I mean, they found mm-hmm. these like iron chains that go around like three to five people's necks at a time. Um, they found, you know, art, they found records, whether they were in poems or, um, court documents of slavery all around the world. And it didn't seem like it was very fun. And it seemed also, um, unfortunately, like it was a lot of times this chattel slavery, not always, but a lot of times. And again, I'm not trying to downplay the horrendous things that happened on American soil, but I'm just trying to understand, like, what is it about this particular circumstance that it's, like, really important that we all hold on to this and explore it? Um, and I don't know if it's the immediacy of it. I don't know if it's hearkening back to what, um, gosh, I think his name's Derek Bell with the critical race theory. I'm not sure if he's trying to uncover, you know, as the words are like the systemic racism of the laws in this country. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure. And 
I'm claiming ignorance for all of us because I don't think, I don't think anybody really knows the full picture. Um, cause we weren't there. We weren't there in the past. So we don't know why this is continuing to be perpetuated, but I don't know. I'm at a loss. Well, I, I see two reasons right off the bat. One is that it's one of the more recent examples. Mm-hmm. Like there are examples of uh, whites being enslaved, but um, those are older examples. So we latch on to like this recent example in American history, which was predominantly black slaves. Mm-hmm. There were indigenous people. There were different forms of slavery mixed in with there. In there. Mm-hmm. And I feel like another thing that cements latching on to this slavery at this period of time, this type, is political interest. Mm. They jump in there and they say, hey, look, you got the raw deal. Those guys over there, they are fucking tyrannical. They are going to do it again unless people like us protect you. We think you deserve money. Mm. We think you deserve reparations. We think you deserve all kinds of things. We're going to fight as hard as we can for you. All you got to do is vote support us, do whatever you can for us to keep us in power. And I think this is one of the things I would suspect maybe Derek Bell was saying is like, look at those promises. They never turn into anything. And the hobos were saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people said the same thing. They never turn into anything that really helps. And I feel like part of the problem is on purpose and part of the problem is deeper than intention. It's the culture that we're all embedded in. We don't, none of us from one end to the other, know another way to live anymore. Mm. We don't know how to live except to grovel at the feet of the rich or to exploit all the poor who grovel at our feet. That's the only game that any of us know at this point, because neither end dreams of having the skills to try to go back into the woods with a tribe. I mean, that's a difficult thing. And it's a difficult thing to organize from a group of people that have forgotten how to do it, that it's even an option. Something I was reading about um, when it comes to slavery, I was just wondering about, oh, how can I say this? Like, I started looking into the history of slavery, all right? And a name that came up was evidently the first slave that was documented in what would become the United States. And forgive me because I, again, I don't know the whole story. Um, I'm not even sure if this is the truth or if this is the narrative that they want us to think is true. But this guy, um, his name was John Punch. And evidently, he was... uh, the 12th generation grandfather of Barack Obama on his mother's side. His mother was white. Um, so I was just interested to, to find that out because I was thinking, wow, like here is kind of the beginning of the slaves in this country. And I know like so many generations out were all related, but it's just interesting to see that um, 12 generations later, here, Barack Obama becomes president. And not, and it, o- not only that, I have one other thing. that He was 
potentially also uh, the ancestor of the 20th century American diplomat Ralph Bunch. Now, the guy's name was John Punch, but it kind of got, you know, through the the ages, um, changed in various ways. So Ralph Bunch, with an E, was the first African-American to win the Nobel Peace Prize in 1950. And you said this is through Barack Obama's mom's side, who was white? Yeah. How the hell does that work? Well, I mean... This is John Punch was a white? No, he's black. So she wasn't completely white? Well, yeah, because it was like 12th generation grandfather um, of Barack Obama. So that's quite a ways back. So there must have been a lot of intermarriages and... You know, I haven't done my DNA analysis, but who knows what kind of stuff I've got in my blood. I mean, I might be part Asian. I might be part African. I don't know. You might be, too. What do you find is the significance of that fact? Why would you share it? Well, I guess it's just interesting to me that um, I, I think that being a victim is a really bad habit and a really bad mindset to live in. I'm not saying that people aren't victimized. There are situations that, you know, yes, definitely, a man being held down for 8 minutes and 46 seconds with some guy kneeling on his neck, that's really fucking bad. That's really bad. On the other hand, did that happen to anyone else other than George Floyd? I don't know, but I'm saying, like, reclaim what your ancestors gave you in their strength, in their ability to uh, to pass on their genes, their, their ancestral, I don't know, uh, wisdom, if you will, if you will. Um, instead of clinging to the victimization of what happened in the past, like, can we be proud that look at what we have um, to be thankful for. I don't know. I still don't get it. Are you saying like because Barack Obama and his recent ancestors weren't uh, hung up on that their ancestor was one of the first slaves in America that they didn't play the victim and so could rise up all the way to the presidency? Well, I mean, I guess I'm just saying like... um, yeah, there's there's a lot of things that have gone in between that we don't know about that, you know, certain people kind of get pushed to the forefront. I'm not talking about that so much as I'm talking about, like, yeah, I guess in a way, like, Barack Obama could have focused on, like, man, you know, uh, I'm part black and that means I'm a victim, so I'll never be this or that. And so did this guy, you know, Ralph Bunch, you know, he might have just been like, oh... What can I ever do? I'm black. And he was some sort of diplomat for some peace talks in uh, Iran, maybe? I can't remember. Um, And he won the Nobel Peace Prize. So I guess I'm just, I don't know, like I'm trying to look at the victim mindset and why that's being pushed so much. Like what what can I possibly do for someone that is going to constantly look at themselves as a victim? I can't do anything for them. Even even with my white skin, I cannot, like, save somebody because 
if you're going to stay a victim, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what to do. I can't do anything. Only thing you can do is for yourself. Well, I do agree with that. The uh, victim mindset is toxic. Um, and I think the only reason to treat someone in that victim mindset and to really try to keep them there, especially like a whole group of people, is to exploit them, to keep them needy. I always think about Frederick mm-hmm. Douglass. You know, I love this story where, you know, emancipation was uh, had recently happened and some white politician asked him, apparently, according to the story, like, what by... Uh, what do you think is the duty of the white man to the black man now? And Frederick Douglass basically said, and I don't know this word for word, but he basically said, nothing. He's like, leave us alone. Like, we got to learn, like, all these, all this time of being kept down, we've got to learn to stand on our own feet. We need you to get out of the way. We don't need you to do anything else for us. And I thought that was a really powerful message. Um... Because that, indeed, like, that's what we all need. You know, Gandhi said the same thing to his people. I remember, like, there was this white uh, preacher that was a really good friend of Gandhi's and wanted to help a lot. And it got to be a point in the, the movement that Gandhi told him, I need you to go home. I really appreciate what you want to do, oh, but yeah. we need to do this. If there is a white face right in front of this movement, it's always going to feel like the white people came in and saved us. We've got to stand up. And that's one of the things I see again in that camp. You know, I I hate to just pick on Democrats so much because it makes me sound like I'm a Republican. It's just right now there's a lot of things coming from the Democratic camp that are so loud and gaining so much power that it, it just grabs more of my ire than the right wing uh, conservative camp at this moment. Um, and one of the things is that that narrative of like welfare, the great white savior, um, you know, just more and more we see people getting in business that's not theirs and making things worse. Think about welfare. Think about like, you know, and it's not just black people on welfare. God knows. I think my understanding of history is welfare came around predominantly to deal with the um, white and some other ethnicities that were in the hobo movement that were fighting um, the industrialization and the exploitation in this country. And it was meant to pacify them, to keep them under control. They were about to stage a full-on revolt before welfare. If welfare hadn't happened... God only knows where we'd be. But if you go to any poor neighborhood where most of the people are on welfare, you're not looking at cared for people. You're not looking at happy people. You're not looking at people who are proud of themselves. You're looking at people, as that guy from the library says, we all hate each other. (laughs) I feel like a piece of shit. I see that my neighbors are stupid, greedy, petty pieces of shit. And we all just feel like shit together waiting for some asshole to come and condescendingly give us a, give us a little bit of money. Mm-hmm. So this whole reparations thing, you know, I think the same thing. That is not an answer. That is a fucking campaign um, strategy. That's not going to help anybody. Money is not the answer, especially given from somebody who's claiming a higher seat. And let's not forget, when we're talking about these politicians and these people in higher places, we're not talking about white people anymore. We gotta, I find myself falling into this, this language sometimes of like, oh, white people. No, we just had a black president. We've got 
a, a, a diverse group of people who are jumping in there to do all the same exploiting bullshit that they always do. I mean, you know, I, I love it when, like, the left claims to, like, oh, we need to let black people talk, black voices. You know, white people need to shut up and listen. And then we had that black politician. I think he was in California. <laughs> you remember his name? I don't. But, you know, the left came out, and as soon as he started expressing conservative views, they said the most racist thing. I can't, again, I, my, oh. my mouth fell open. They called him the black face of white supremacy. <laughs> this was a black man who just, right before he spoke, they're like, black people need to speak. White people need to listen. Yeah. And now the white people are getting out there and saying, he's a black face of white supremacy because he spoke, and he said the wrong thing. <laughs> again and again, what gets revealed is they're not talking about a group of people who they want to uplift. They're talking about a group of people who should be beholden to them and should say the right things. They're beholden to an ideology in which they stay in power. Something else that I wrote about critical race theory. This was from, damn, I, I'll have to look at it, see if I can find the source. Um, but it was talking about the core premise of critical race theory, that the invention and reinvention of race enables the status quo, and that liberal solutions prove inefficient, have been applied in recent decades within fields from education to disability studies. The article said, the era's legal victories outlawed only what the justice system narrowly understood racism to be. I believe that was like the civil rights era, you know, like when it was really ramping up like the 60s and 70s and even before then. But the laws only outlawed what the narrow definition was of racism. OK, so there is an element in critical race theory to look at more than just what the laws imply is racist. And then the article goes on to talk about um, the, the right, the conservatives view of critical race theory. And it says, if there's anything valid about the conservatives cooked up attacks, of course, this is, you know, bias speak. Um, it's their sense that a free accounting of race in society cannot help but imply an unmaking of the rule of law as we know it. And in that case, the influential liberal class might have good reason to diminish the movement's teachings. And I thought that was interesting because, like Ted Kaczynski warned us, the leftists co-opting a movement. Of course they don't want to undo laws that protect what they want, especially the, what, upper middle class and higher elitist leftists that these laws often are arranged to protect and to continue their health and wealth. Um, so, you know, in that way, it's again, like going around full circle. Like I don't necessarily agree with what I've been hearing about critical race theory. Cause I think by design, it has been, um, misrepresented on both sides for various motives. But I do kind of, I'm starting to understand, you know, I told Gumby, I'm trying to get my sights back. In other words, um, what's important to me? And when I see, when I look and I, I try to line everything up about what's important to me, it's not important to me to protect 
laws that I don't agree with, whether they are protecting the, the left or the right in the United States. If I don't agree with the laws, living the way I do, believing the things that I do, then I guess... Uh, not necessarily you supporting critical race theory, but maybe I need to look at what I'm saying no to. Do you understand what I'm saying? No. <laughs> okay. What I'm saying is they're intentionally all of these different outlets that are talking about, we've been talking about critical race theory now for a long time, an hour. Um, they are really trying to make this a divisive, confusing issue only because their interests lie in keeping things at the status quo. Now, some of what is happening in society we benefit from. We benefit from being able to park here for free and enjoy the park and use the outlets and go swimming in the river. We don't have to pay for any of that, you know, aside from whatever taxes we're paying. But what we were initially setting out to do was to, um, we, we didn't want this society. We were trying to escape this society. So the left and the right, as we know, it's kind of, uh, they're, they're both trying to protect the status quo, I guess is what I'm getting at. And this critical race theory initially was trying to undo that status quo. So I don't know. I don't know what I believe. But was it? I mean, I hear uh, them bringing up a valid point. And again, if they were, I, I have a hard time. I feel like you you might be leaving something out the way you worded that. Because I like the way you worded it. But I have a hard time seeing where the leap is from you talking about oppressed people to it becoming such a racial, racially segregated issue. I mean, that's a big leap. So I, I'm, I'm skeptical of myself that you might have left out an important part of that. But I haven't read it, so uh, well, I, certainly, I don't know for sure. I certainly am not a... I'm not... I have not read these books that are out there, like the critical race theory books, Richard Delgado or anything like that. So I don't know all of what their message is. I guess I'm just getting at... Uh, I'm kind of sick of all of these sides. I don't think any of them are... are what I believe in. Yeah, I don't think any political ideology helps and is good. I think they're all exploitative and they all just seek power for power's sake, basically. Not power to do good in the world, just power for power's sake. And I think any meaningful alliance between any group of people has to do with the well-being of that group of people. I think if there's someone in your path and you can help them, you can help a neighbor, that's a good thing. But I think we start crossing a line when we get into a cause, because then we're starting to fuck with people that we don't understand. We don't really understand their problems. And a cause never is like, or usually I'd say isn't like taking care of your own group. It's to take care of someone else's group. And by definition, like Gandhi, like Frederick Douglass points out, when you start taking care of someone else's group, it's a clever way of subjugating them. Mm -hmm. Now they are beholden to you, and if you can do it long enough, now they are utterly dependent on you. They will fight for you. They will defend you. They will kill for you. They will vote for you. That is an ugly thing. It's another form of slavery. 
It's just another form of slavery. What's slavery other than exploitation and dependence? Exploiting someone who you've made dependent upon you. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's the essence of slavery. Exploitation. And um, so to go back to what you're saying about Derek Bell? Yeah. So, all right, setting aside for the moment, you know, that I find it weird that the way you worded it, he's just like talking about oppressed people. But taking that on face value, I hear a negation sort of him saying like, okay, it doesn't matter political party. This shit ain't working over and over. It ain't working. And uh, we need to look at that basically, right? Yeah, we need to look at these laws that have been passed that are not helping. We'll just narrow it down and say are not helping black people. So what's he saying the positive is, as in not the positive of good thing, but like, what do we do? What's the solution? Because it sounds like, is Derek Bell the professor you're talking about? Yes. So it sounded like his solution was Harvard needs to hire more black professors. Well, that was... Which again, is one of the reasons I find it skeptical that the way you worded that, because right away, that same guy... Around the same time period, I would imagine these words were written or spoken, is saying we need to hire more black people, which seems to me not someone who would just say, like, oppressed peoples as if we're – I'm uni- unifying all the oppressed peoples. It's like this is the oppressed people, and they have a certain skin color. Well, I think – And I don't see that as a solution. I mean to me that's no. sort of like what leads to an affirmative action kind of thinking which is not the kind of thing Frederick Douglass or the Black Panthers seem to be supporting. It's not independence. It's just like, you know, uh, we've heard a lot of interviews and stuff about this kind of thing. Where yeah, I think you're there, there's a qualified candidate. Yeah, I think you're well, conf- let me finish uh-huh. and then you can like tell me what I'm, I'm confusing. But like the affirmative action kind of thinking is like, you know, we've got qualified candidates and now we're going to pick someone because of their skin color. So that is a racist way of thinking. If you're kicking somebody or exploiting them or just rising them up based only on their skin color, we're still fixated on skin color, collectivism, rather than individualism, the content of their abilities and their character. If we pick the people that are best for the job, to hell with their skin color. Let's just wipe that off the table. I don't care what color you are. You're good at the job. We want you because somebody who does this job well, we all benefit. All of us. So that's my way of thinking. And so when I hear a professor, Derek Bell, say something along the lines of we need to hire more black professors, I'm skeptical of a statement like that. I feel like we need to hire more good professors. We need to make sure that we're not discriminating against black professors. But if the people in front of us that are the best happen to be White, woman, Asian, whatever, that's the person we need. So now if you want to address that, tell me where I've gone wrong. Yeah, I think his um, idea of looking at law wasn't necessarily, I don't think his solution was to hire more black professors or black legal professors at Harvard. That was why he left Harvard. He disagreed with their hiring policy. And I'm not saying I agree with him doing that. But any details? What is the hiring prophecy? Did he disagree because he thought they were discriminating against black people? I don't know. He Look, there were students that were studying under him. He decided to leave Harvard um, because of his beliefs. 
I don't really understand or know what his motive was, why he left, but he just did. And he ended up coming back to heart. That has nothing to do with the, I mean, for me, it's getting further and further away from what his goal was with whatever he was teaching the students. Maybe, I mean, everything's interlinked and I guess having more professors that were diverse or whatever might have been a goal of his, but um, I think that's kind of separate from what he was trying to get at. I think he was trying to rouse um, the law students, which, you know, I was going to bring up. Here's a bunch of people that have gotten into Harvard. Like, uh, that's fairly privileged, and a lot of the students that I'm talking about were of diverse backgrounds, whether they were black whether they were from uh, an Asian background, whether they were Hispanic, um, you know, they got into Harvard. Yeah, what kind of culture that is institutionally racist allows I agree. people that are supposedly in the oppressed group to get into such a prestigious school? I mean, like when I hear the description of like Gandhi going to Africa, where he started really representing oppressed people, it doesn't sound like the kind of atmosphere where a lot of like uh, Indian people were like going to the sweetest, most privileged white places. I mean, that's how he knew he was looking at a really oppressive system is they were barred, outright barred from those places. They couldn't even walk on the streets with white people. That is a blatant problem. So I'm wondering how something like this rises among people that feel like they are part of an oppressed group in Harvard. Yeah, I mean, and I brought that up to you, I think. So I I agree with that. Um, I guess my stance is, again, trying to align my sights and focus on what's important, which is not necessarily, you know, that I want to be a follower of any sort of theory, academic thinky-talk theory, as uh, one of the podcasts we listened to called it, uh, or they shared a clip of someone else calling it that, but what do I want out of my life? Do I want to continue to focus on keeping the status quo? (laughs) Is the status quo even going to remain the status quo or is it going to like kick it up a notch and then we're really going to be more and more oppressed, all of us? Um, I guess I was just saying like the, the idea that laws are not necessarily helping the people that they are supposed to be helping. Too bad that didn't go anywhere. Too bad people didn't understand that these laws, it was all a ruse. It was all just for people to get votes. See, that's what I was trying to get at. Like, where could it have gone? I mean, like, I feel like some of the things that have addressed that very thing are things like affirmative action that I feel like actually doesn't address it. So if he's saying, he's pointing out a problem that I agree with, then what's the solution? You know, if this is so, like, institutionalized racism, that's pretty damn embedded. And then that leads to things like, if you're white, you are racist just because you're white. But you can't be racist if you're black because you're in the minority oppressed group. Things like that keep us divided and oppressed, keep us embedded in the very system that they're saying is institutionally wrong, which, by the way, I find another uh, big 
hypocrisy of the left is now they, you know, they say that out of one side of their mouth and then they tell us to trust the government when it comes to vaccine mandates and things like that out of the other side of their mouth. Trust the government implicitly. Trust the scientists who work for the government. Um, at the same time, they're saying the government is institutionally racist. It's my understanding racism is a pretty bad human quality. So a government that is institutionally bad, I don't find myself inspired to distrust what comes out of their mouth at face value. So anyway, that's another thing. But yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. I agree with where you went with that, even though I didn't quite follow you on the leap from one to the other. But I don't understand this thing about uh, Derek Bell, like what he's saying we should do. He made all I'm getting is he made a pretty good observation about here's a problem. And I hope the way you worded it, like I would agree with it applies to a lot of uh, marginalized people. But I don't get no sense of what his solution was. Yeah, I don't either. I don't know. I have no idea. But then where you jump next, I agree with you that the real like solution I see is to set aside all the political ideologies and as much as you can deal with people. Like I just saw a friend um, yesterday, we were walking through the park and he's black and like, it wasn't a thing, you know, it's like, we talked about a few things. We talked about a teacher that we both knew that had died and he went to his memorial and he gave me some duct tape and I, we talked about the, the plant I was picking and, you know, race and political things just didn't come up. He even said that they're quarantined at his house. He's married to, uh, do you know where his wife's from? What nationality? Uh, it's like somewhere in South America. You know, it's just not a thing when you're dealing with people. But these political ideologies get us worked up and suck us into these camps. Yep. And that's what you're dealing with. Like when I get on Facebook, I'm dealing with the camps. I'm dealing with the collectivists. I'm dealing with what group are you rooting for? You're dealing with that propaganda that Bernays talked about in the quote I read at the beginning. Yeah. So I agree as much as possible. Like this stuff is toxic. It's addictive because like... I like to kind of hone my skills in debate. It gets me thinking. It gets me considering like how to counter things that I feel opposed to. But really, people people don't work like that unless they're sucked in. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of divided. You know, on the one hand, I agree with that. I think that's the goal. That's the reality. But there's also there is that collectivist thing. There are things that are happening in political camps like vaccine mandates that if we don't pay attention. So what the collectivists are doing, we're going to get blindsided with no excuse because we sh- it was happening right there in front of us. So I kind of feel like I need to pay attention to that, too. You know, the, the camps, the political ideologies, because they're not leaving people alone. I, I think every political ideology is almost by nature trying to fuck with somebody. <laughs> trying to disrep- disrepute yeah. somebody, trying to uh, uh, recruit somebody, trying to exploit somebody, trying to control somebody, all of them. None of these pol- politics are just basically leaving people alone, other than perhaps the libertarians. But as we started getting into with transhumanism and technologists, even them, I'm kind of skeptical. They, they make a big show of like, we just want to be left alone, do our own thing. But if they push this technology forward, tell me that's not going to touch every person on the planet. Yeah, It's all connected. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard because I want to just live my life and I want to lean more towards that because what the hell can I do against the whole world? So I want to put my energy where I can make progress. But at the same time, 
I can't completely ignore what everybody else is doing because, you know, when they start plugging shit into people's brains and putting nanotechnology in the water supply and, you know, stuff like that, it affects us. Mm-hmm. And I, I, uh, I liked the conversation that we were having yesterday with your, your friend from way back. Um, and he said something like, you know, I don't find myself agreeing with everything that you say, you being Gumby. Um, but I think he listens to our podcast sometimes, so maybe me too. Um, but we can have conversations. We can have disagreements. We can agree to disagree. And he said, you know, that's, I kind of feel like that's something that it's, well, I don't know if he said this, but it's rare nowadays. And it's, uh, it's vitally important to be able to do because otherwise we're all going to be split up into smaller and smaller and smaller groups. Speaking of living our lives and, uh, I'm going to wrap it up here. Having They're going to wrap it up here? I'm about to wrap it up. Speaking about living our lives and um, I guess people that have finished living their lives, you had uh, something on the list that you wanted to mention about another friend from your past. I don't know if you still want to do that or... Nah, let's just skip that. I had a lot of things on that list. Huh. Okay. Well... I've just, you know, I've, I've realized that so many of the things that seem clear-cut when you hear it from others, when you really start to dig down, it isn't clear-cut, and uh, I, I'm, like, I just want to turn away from it. Like, I want to, um, as much as I can, focus on, in my life that's left, focus on the things that are important to me and the things that are real, and uh, and hopefully that will make a difference in my life and who knows it might move to other people's lives too maybe move them to be a little more uh, open I'm going to read a listener write-in from someone that uh, likes to get involved in discussions with Gumby online Brian from Portland Oregon <laughs> this is from a long time ago Brian writes I haven't listened to this one yet And he was referring to our episode, Escaping Society in Five Easy Steps. But in general, this is an enjoyable podcast. Keep up the good work. And uh, thank you, Brian, for that. And I also highly recommend listening to Escaping Society in Five Easy Steps. I really liked that episode. I thought Gumby did a great job of uh, putting together a list that he had been thinking about for a long time of the practical ways in which like walking through your thought process of escaping society as well as moving into the skill sets of escaping society yeah i enjoyed that episode too and uh our ideas change i'm not sure i'd still like i mean i don't think i'd do any episode the same if i (laughs) did it again but uh yeah, I'm kind of like, in that episode, I said step five, the last step should be bushcraft. And now I'm kind of like leaning towards the bushcraft as like what I want to do more of. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's all fluid. It's all up in the air. That's how I feel a lot about a lot of things. I think most things in my life right now are, um, I don't know, they're kind of feeling like they're shifting, getting shuffled. And uh, 
I feel like I need to, I don't know, regroup somehow. Was there anything else that you wanted to say? All right. Well, I'm going to call this good, and if you uh, have any questions, you want to add something, uh, a listener write-in for the future, please go to our website, escapingsociety.weebly.com. There's a comment form on the front page. There's also a donate button at the top of the page, and uh, we have some YouTube videos that you can watch for um, learning how to do some uh, different foraging for wild edibles and medicinals, as well as some other skills that you might... uh, find interesting and we have a facebook page at escaping society um yeah thinking about all that technology but for now this is what we're doing we're trying to put our messages out there and connect with people um using this technology so thanks for listening oh society sucks and we don't need it it's killing your kids so why do you feed it they'll tell you to stay but you don't need to heed it you can give them the finger there's no time to linger so thank you for listening to our song it's not very good and it went kind of long don't care if you like it cause we'll be gone over that next horizon we ain't got no 